Hi, this is Maggie Rose, and you're listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. I started this podcast to showcase women in music who inspire me and who I want folks everywhere to know about. My guests are icons in contemporary music, independent artists, studio musicians, hit songwriters, and power players behind the scenes. All of them challenging the status quo, respecting the hustle, and leading the way for women following in their footsteps. Salute the Songbird is a platform for women in music to share their stories and let their voices be heard. And everyone has a seat at the table. Welcome. Today, I'm talking with someone who's an institution in country music. She inspires me with the way that she lives her life, and she's definitely an artist that made me want to move to Nashville in the first place in 2008. But knowing her and what she's about, she's someone who makes me really proud to remain a part of that community. She's much more than her hits, and there are many, many hits to speak of. But she's also been at the helm of a movement to boost women artists in Nashville. And she puts her money where her mouth is. She took me on tour with her in 2017. She's very multifaceted. And most of all, she's just a wonderful person. She doesn't really need an introduction. I'm sure you've heard of her, but I can't wait to talk more with her. Here's Martina McBride. I'd like to welcome an icon, someone who's been an inspiration to me for many years. Uh, She took me on tour with her on the CMT Next Women of Country Tour in 2017. She sold 18 million albums. She's had 22 top 10 singles, including six number ones, tons of crossover success. She's a member of the Grand Ole Opry. She's a four-time CMA Vocalist of the Year winner. You're a published cookbook author two times over, right? Yeah. So, welcome to Salute the Songbird, Martina McBride. We salute you. We love what you do. It's so awesome to see you and talk to you. Thank you for spending some time with us. It's great to see you. I know. I've missed you. I've I've missed everybody, really, this year. And and we were battling some technical difficulties, which is so 2020 of us, (laughs) especially... All of this, you said you were your own lighting director, makeup artist, and set designer today. Yeah, like now it's like whenever we do interviews and we do them from home, it's like you have to get the background right, the lighting right. We used to, we just walk in and sit down and somebody else would take care of all that, right? Exactly. Well, I think you've done a beautiful job. For those of you listening, she has the coziest fire roaring behind her. I see some Christmas decorations, just beautiful interior design. Thank you. I'd expect nothing less. When I got to go on tour with you, we had so much fun. I got to know your husband, John McBride. We were with Post Monroe and Lauren Elena, and you were such a wonderful headlining tour mate, and and you took such good care of us. You even threw us a spa day. Yeah. I remember we all had manicures done at one of the venues. We got to go drinking one night, and I was very impressed. You're smaller than me, and I think you were able to shoot more tequila than I was that (laughs) night, so I was incredibly impressed with your ability to do that. And I think you were like giving me hell for not being able to stay out (laughs) as late. It was one of the most fun tours. And I associate that whole energy with you, who you are as an artist, even with all your accomplishments. I feel like you've been so vocal about propping other women up and advocating for them. So it's very fitting that 
my first time getting to meet you was facilitated through Leslie Fram at CMT, who's been also such a proponent of equal representation for women in the country genre. I I love the work that you guys have been doing. But let's quickly take it back to the beginning from Sharon, Kansas, Mm -hmm. where you grew up and you were playing music in a family band your maiden name is Schiff and you were in the shifters with your dad and your siblings Mm -hmm. that's really where your musical education began right yeah you know the town that I grew up in well actually I grew up on a farm about 10 miles out of the town that I went to high school in which is Sharon and my dad was a farmer and had this country band you know he was a he was a singer and acoustic guitar player and always sort of had this band from the time I can remember and when I was about seven years old I started singing and playing keyboards in the band. And my younger brother... Seven. Yeah. And my younger brother at five started playing guitar and singing. And looking back, I realized at the time that there's nobody else in that community that did that. Like, it was pretty unique. But now that I've gotten out into the world, first of all, I met a lot of country artists who have had that kind of, you know, same experience growing up in a small town with, you know, a family band or at least performing from a young age. But... It was such a cool thing now I look back, you know, and we were just obsessed with music. I just found some, my dad gave me a bunch of cassettes. He's like, here's a box of cassettes that I found. I have no idea what's on here. Just please go through them. And I'm like, I'd love to. And, you know, the first one that I put in was me and my brother at five and seven out in this utility room that we had. And I had a Farfisa organ and he had his electric guitar. He could barely play. And we were just jamming. Like we were just playing, well, I've got a Waylon shirt on. We were just playing like old Waylon Jennings songs and Johnny Paycheck and and <laughs> laughing and cutting up. And it was just like our, it was normal for us. You know, we were just obsessed to come home from school and just listen to music and play music for hours. And I had friends over and they would be like, don't you want to go out and play? And (laughs) I would like just hold them hostage listening to albums and, you know, all that kind of thing. So I was going to ask if you were the local rock star and if everyone revered you for being in a band, but it made you kind of odd to your friends to be so music obsessed. Yeah, I think it was odd. You know, it was a small town in Kansas, very sports oriented, and not a lot of people were as into music as we were. So I'm not saying that I was an outcast by any means because everybody, you know, I had 10 people in my graduating class. We were all so close, but but it was just something that nobody else did. Nobody else played in a band and sang and was as obsessed with music as I was. I love that. I wish that I had spent less time trying to be popular in high school and was playing in a band. After you were in the shifters for a while, you kind of grew tired of that. And then you joined another band by the name of, you have to say it. Penetrators. (laughs) Girl, I'm telling you. The Penetrators. Yeah, the Penetrators, just in case you didn't hear it the first time. I was 17 years old and had just graduated from high school. And this local, like a band in a town about 40 miles away, a big city of about 40,000 people. They were sort of family friends and they came and asked if I wanted to, if I could sing in this band. And, and I swear to you, I was so sheltered in this little tiny hamlet of a community that I had no idea that there was any kind of sexual innuendo with the thing. Sure. But I thought, yeah, we'll penetrate you with our music. You know what I mean? Like, I love it. Get it at all. So, uh, 
So that's embarrassing. But I played in a Bruce Springsteen tribute band when I was 16 because you, you and I wanted to play music. And I think it was just a means to an end to be able to get on stage and start like honing your craft. And you were playing at Holiday Inns and this was some heavy metal music. It was more like um, Pat Benatar. I did Pat Benatar, Heart. Awesome. Journey. Like, you know, like 80s pop music, 80s rock pop music. And we sing in like rock clubs in, in kind of a tri-state area. We travel a little bit to Nebraska and to Oklahoma. But yeah, the Holiday Inn thing, we thought we had finally gotten our big break because we had gotten booked to play a Holiday Inn for a week. And so it was me and all these older guys too. Like they were all in their 20s for sure. Yeah. We rode around this van that had a hole in the floor and we had no money. And so we all pooled our money together and got like two big jars of peanut butter and jelly and a couple loaves of bread. And that's what we were going to live on for the week. Oh my gosh. Things have changed. Yeah. And so we ended up driving all the way to, I think, Missouri, maybe for the, um, for the gig. And it was the wrong, we had showed up on the, on the wrong week. Yeah. So like somebody had dropped the ball on the booking. Your tour manager was yeah, non-existent. Tour manager. There were, yeah. Sure. And we uh, ended up actually devouring the, all the peanut butter and jelly in, in like, you know, on the ride home because we were going <laughs> to like, we were going to like make it last for the whole week. Such crazy experiences. I wish I'd have kept a journal then. See, I mean, that's just a, a commonality, I think, with all these women that I'm talking to is everyone's had a moment like that where almost with reckless abandon, they were hitting the road and doing whatever they needed to do to be able to play that live music. But you guys didn't even get to play that weekend. But no. you, you had plenty of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So then with the penetrators, you kind of fizzled out. You guys disbanded and you went on to form Lotus. And it was a different situation, but the similarities were that it was still you as a young teenager yeah. So that band was already formed and they were, they were like a, cl- a house band and a club and they played five nights a week from probably, I don't know if I can remember, maybe 8.30 until two or three in the morning when the bars closed back then. Wow. Well, I first got hired to this band called The Works, which was this like kind of an R&B band. I sang Bonnie Raitt and Aretha, some Whitney Houston. And then I went to Lotus. So I sang five nights a week in this, this really popular club in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, singing things like Madonna and Anita Baker. And that time in my life was a real formative period for me to sing all different styles of music and really explore my voice, you know? I've seen you in action and you have such a big voice. You're so powerful. I'm sure that your abilities almost made it difficult to figure out what kind of music you wanted to settle on. What made you finally decide that like country music was your path when you can sing at all? Well, as we said, I grew up singing country music and kind of rebelled and did all these other things. And then I was I sort of have a little bit of voice voice issues. So I took some time off from the club. I took just to kind of sat back for a minute and stopped really performing constantly five nights a week. And then I got a chance to go back and sing with my dad's band. And all of a sudden it hit me like we were doing a dance or a little gig. And I just thought, you know, this is what I want to do. This is what speaks to me really. Like the vocal is featured. It's not covered up by a lot of music. It's the story. It's like the lyrics matter. And it feels like home to me. And at that time in my life, I think I gravitated towards something that was comforting and, and solid. And so, yeah, I just made the decision kind of like 
like that and decided to move to Nashville. Me and my husband, John and I were married at that point, barely. We were married about a year or not even. When did you and John meet? We met in 1987. I love your husband so much. I had so much fun with him on that tour. And both you and John founded Blackbird, which is one of the most world famous studios here in Nashville. It's one of my favorite places to record. And I mean, it's had Neil Young has been there and Taylor Swift. And oh my gosh, I mean, the, the list of artists that have been able to record music there is insane. So you guys have had such a successful marriage, but I heard, and I didn't know this, that you got engaged after one month of dating. We did. We did. And I was like maybe 19, almost 20. I mean, if my daughter right now, who's 22, she came to me and said she was getting married to be like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's so young, but we, we met. Okay. So I was trying to put a band together and he had a rehearsal space for rent. He had a sound company that he did local sound for local concerts and did a little bit of touring, like with Steppenwolf and things. And, um, so somebody said, you need to call John McBride. He has a, he's just built a rehearsal space for rent. And so I called him up and he's like, Oh, it's not quite ready yet, but you know, I'll let you know when it's ready. And then I met him out. We were out at a bar and we met and we just hit it off. Like we were friends at first, you know, like I really just wanted, I think I just wanted to be friends, but he was pretty persistent and charming and fun and funny. And we went on a date in January and we got engaged Actually, we met in January. We got we went on a date in April and got engaged in May. Wow. And then we set it for a year ahead. It'll be 33 years in May. That's incredible. <laughs> and you all have such an inspirational marriage. And I remember on tour, I think we were looking at you when we were all at that party. And he was like, I know how to pick them. And I picked <laughs> a good one. He was very proud of himself. Yeah. Um, and my husband was out on the road with us too on that tour. We got engaged after 11 months. We worked together. And then our engagement lasted for a year and three months, but... Pretty similar, really. I mean... I mean, basically in this day and age, and it's been so wonderful to have someone that I can share this music with. And I feel that you have that too, where the work really never stops because you have one of your favorite collaborators under the roof with you. And he's such a great sound engineer and he's like his knowledge of music is comparable to yours. And, you know, I feel like that just must be such a a wonderful environment for creativity to thrive. And that's why you guys have it figured out. I hope that I can talk to you in 30 years and have the same things to say about my own relationship, because you really do seem like you've been able to balance so much, like this wildly successful career and inspiring marriage. You have three daughters. You know, sometimes I resent when women get asked this question, but it's like, how do you do all of it? How do you find time to do all of these things that you've been able to do as a woman, as a mother, as a creator, as an author and a wife? And I don't know if there's a simple answer. Well, I think on one hand, it's very simple. And on the other hand, it's probably, I probably don't realize how difficult it really is or was. You know, I think that as women, we just kind of put our heads down. You know, we just kind of do it, what needs to be done. And you're right. I was telling John the other day, I'm like, nobody ever asked a man, how do you balance family? Exactly. Ever. But, you know, I think as women, we just have this kind of out of necessity, probably ability to just get done what needs to be done. And, you know, 
I think also I have this really weird kind of, maybe this isn't common to all women. I'm not sure, but speaking for myself, I have this weird kind of gift or affliction. I don't know which it is to be able to, I'm sort of in it. Like, you know, used to, I would get off stage and there's a baby that needed their diaper change. Well, you're just going to do the baby. That's going to bring you right back down to earth, isn't it? (laughs) But it's like, I'm just kind of in the moment. I'm a very analytical, probably overthinker, but when it comes to that kind of stuff, it's just like, this is what we do. This is what we do. Like we're doing it. Like I, I want to have babies and I want to tour. And, and I have to say that, and this, this will probably be a great thing for you too, is having a partner that is part of what you do. You know, so I, it wasn't me out on the road alone with these babies. John was there too. So we were both tag teaming it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm definitely at the age where I'm getting those unsolicited questions all the time about when are you going to have kids and what will that mean for your career? And it's, it's an overwhelming prospect, but it's something that I know I'm going to do and I can do, but I watch people like you who've been able to find time to do all of those things and, and with intention and care. What you realize is when they're little, here's my advice for you, if you want it, Please. We all forget that when they're little, they're so portable. You could really, you could just take them anywhere with you. They don't care where they are as long as they're safe and with you, right? So like, I think we all think that once we have kids, everything has to come to a grinding halt. But really, it's just, it's a little harder and you don't get as much sleep and all of that. But it's, I feel like this is with you as it is with me and John. Our, our lives and our career kind of all rolled into one thing. And you add a child and it just kind of rolls on into it, you know, it just, you figure it out. Yeah. Really not until they get older and start getting a mind of their own and start saying they don't want to go on the road or they want to stay home and see their friends. That's when things get a little tricky. So you and John get engaged. You move to Nashville in 90, you get a record deal in 91, but there's something really awesome that kind of happened in that year because John McBride was the sound engineer for Garth Brooks, who was already like killing it at this point. And Garth Brooks saw you out his tour bus window in bare feet, lugging dry ice somewhere in Arizona where you were on the road because you were selling merch for Garth Mm -hmm. joining John so you could be with your new husband Mm-hmm. And Garth saw this work ethic in you and then figured out in a roundabout way that you are a singer and a formidable talent and then kind of took a chance on you and gave you this huge opening gig. Mm-hmm. And so I've been in Nashville for 13 years and to see someone move in 90 and then get the RCA deal in 91 is pretty astounding. Mm-hmm. What was that like? with Garth? Like, how did that conversation go where you got from A to B from being barefoot selling merch to then opening up his concert? Like, why was I barefoot selling merch? It's so unprofessional, but I, I'm just like, it's one of my favorite things about that story. <laughs> Actually. Yeah. And we were in Arizona and we had this, uh, heat wave. It was horrible. It was like 118 degrees or something. Ugh. I heard something going wrong with the PA and I was like, what's happening? And I call, I called John on like the walkie talkie or whatever it is, the radio and said, he goes, our, our, our um, amplifiers are overheating and we've got some dry ice coming in. And I was like, what can I do? And so I left my t-shirt post and went and he said, just drag this dry ice and put it, just put it up next to the fan, you know, the amplifiers and it'll cool them down, which it did. 
yeah, so I, I didn't know that Garth saw that until I actually interviewed him for my podcast and he told me that story. And then, you know, worked on getting a record deal in the meantime. And when that came through, he asked us over to give us advice on the music business. I was like, yeah, I'm there. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to miss that meeting. Yeah. And he asked what I'd been working on in the studio and I sang a little bit acapella of the song, When You Are Old, the Gretchen Peters song. And he said, you know, I'd like you to open my tour. And it's like, he, he did really take a chance on me because he'd never seen me on stage. He, he'd never really heard me sing. He kind of just went with it. You know, I think it was a gut instinct thing. So I went on tour. I actually started opening for him before our single was even out. This makes me just love him so much more because yeah. you're already like, okay, he's Garth, but <laughs> he's also like a master A&R and was able to recognize your talent. I think you do that for other artists. You prop them up, you advocate for them, and you walk the walk. You're very much like him in the way that you've given a lot of people a platform to get their music out there as well. So I'm glad that um, you and Garth share that character trait as you do. So what was that like being on stage all of a sudden, a new transplant to Nashville, and now you're opening up one of the biggest country artists tours. How many shows did you do together? We did 77 shows. Oh my God. In June to December. And it was amazing. I mean, I, I have to say like a couple of things I want to say about that. First of all, the audiences were so amazing, just warm and welcoming and, and like made me really, you know, they could have been like, they were really paying attention because I think, you know, having that sort of nod of approval from, from Garth who they worshiped was, was really a, a plus. So they were listening and, and in their seats. And it was really a cool experience from that point of view. Well, you earned, you earned their affection though. You know, it wasn't just like Garth ordained you. And then all of a sudden you became the household name that you are. I mean, you were, first of all, you said yes to that opportunity. And I think that that's a huge thing because so many factors could have, have made you run from such an opportunity. And then you seized it and you won these people over. Then you started releasing albums with RCA seemingly every year. Like you were incredibly prolific. There's luck, there's tenacity, there's ambition. But mostly, you know, you had to close the deal and get those people on your side. I also think there's a belief. You have to have a belief in yourself. You know, one thing I think everybody has in common that gets to the level, you know, of performing that we, we are at, where we're actually making music and making records and performing live is somewhere inside you, you believed you could do it, right? Mm -hmm. And you yes. saw yourself as beyond, beyond the local bar, singing five nights a week, beyond the you know, whatever it is like you, you, and I think that that's so critical and, and, you know, what this podcast is about and how we don't have to beat a dead horse about the challenges that we face as women in this industry. Right. <laughs> but you know, that's a lot, you have to have a lot of strength and belief in yourself to do this. And when you find Absolutely. an opportunity like that, you're right. It does take you being able to go, I can do that. I can do that. You know, I can, I can do that. I can, I can make the most of that opportunity. Absolutely. I think fear is where a lot of dreams die and end. And you prove to rise to the occasion so many times. And then one thing that I, I really find kind of poetic justice is on the way that I am when you released Independence Day. And you mentioned Gretchen Peters. Who, who is Gretchen Peters to you? 
Well, she's an amazing songwriter. You know, the first song I cut of hers was a song called When You Are Old on my first album. Beautiful song. And then I cut My Baby Loves Me and Independence Day on the second, on the, I think it was on the second album. So to me, like she wrote all those songs by herself. And Independence Day to me, when you write, if you ever, I've done it because I've done for charity auctions and stuff, written those lyrics out. It's like poetry. I mean, it's like a, such a, an amazingly written song. Like not only is the story all there and intact, but it's also, it uses all these metaphors and this imagery and it's just like, it's brilliant. And so I was super lucky to be able to be the one that heard that song. And You were a conduit to so much beautiful storytelling. And I think that that's who I consider you to be among so many things, but as a storyteller. And my non sequitur that I started earlier was the poetic justice is the fact that you cut this song Independence Day, which is about a woman in an abusive relationship, a mother protecting her family, burning the house down, and country radio shit the bed and didn't play it. But then you won video and song of the year at that year's CMAs. Gretchen won a Grammy that year, and it made you an activist. Mm -hmm. Like you became a voice of empowerment for women who were in relationships that didn't necessarily even have to come to blows, but people who were diminished in what should be their comfortable place. Was that something that was an objective of yours when you heard that song and you decided to cut it? Did you want to facilitate these women getting out of these bad situations? I don't know that it was an objective. I don't know that it was, it was a conscious decision. It was just an emotional decision. You know, I just, I, I would, my life was changed by that song, not only from a career standpoint, but personally, I was just incensed. Like, I think coming from, well, a couple of things, coming from the place that I came from, obviously domestic violence was never talked about. So I'm sure it went on, but nobody knew it. So I, I was sort of a little bit naive about it. I, I was in, you know, as a as a young woman in a couple of relationships that were nothing that like that, but you know, weird and kind of like I, I got a taste of what it felt like to be helpless at the hands of another person, and so I kind of had that little bit of experience, and I just was enraged. Like I heard this song, and then I then I started getting all these letters and realized this is wrong and it's huge. It's like I I guess I didn't know the scope of it really, and. Um, just thought, said, I have to do something. Like I can remember calling my manager and going, what, what can we, like, I have to do something. Like, what is there that I can do to make it, to make this better? And I think took him completely by surprise and shock because I'm sure that never had entered his mind. And um, then, yeah, went on to just try to do whatever I could to, to raise awareness. And, and, you know, the letters that I got back then were so amazing because these women would say, this song helped me. I heard, you know, I've been in this relationship for 12 years. I heard this song on the radio and I left. And it made me think that's what, that's the power of music. That's the power of a song. Like when you know that a song is going to be, what I knew about that song was that it was going to be a, a lifeline for someone, right? Like all of a sudden they were going to have a song that somebody was singing on the radio that let them know that they are not alone. They're not crazy and they're not alone. And there is, there is somebody else that has gone through this. So. I knew that when I reported, I knew that it would be that for somebody. But beyond that, you know, I didn't have the... You didn't see what it would actualize to be, but you destigmatized that whole idea and, and you, you made it not taboo to talk about 
domestic abuse, you put it out in the open, even what you're saying, it wasn't discussed in Sharon, Kansas. It, it was something that people kind of swept under the rug or kept quiet about. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the responses that you get from people just sharing these incredibly intimate stories with you? And do you feel a burden carrying the torch for that kind of cause? Or is it something that you know, it's something that you've unlocked through music, a gift that you've been able to help people with. Yeah, that's really what I think it is. I don't feel a burden. I just feel privileged, you know, to be able to sing songs that, I don't know, like I said, I feel like with songs like I'm Gonna Love You Through It or Concrete Angel or whatever, Broken Wing, Independence Day, I feel like there's songs that, that people go, oh my gosh, that's my life. Music is like, sometimes it should be just be a big dance party, but there's something about finding a song that connects that's so special. And I think so much more immediate than any other art form. Like I feel very, very blessed that I, that I get to experience this art form where I get to communicate through song and through lyrics. Right. Well, you probably became a confidant to a lot of women who, until they had heard that song, had kept whatever they were dealing with in the shadows. So by putting it out there, you, you've probably helped people save their lives in so many ways. I mean, I think it's, it's really astounding. And that song still has so much potency when you listen to it. I love that we play it on the 4th of July every year. I'm like, <laughs> we should play this song every day, but people... <laughs> you know, it's funny. I think people are just... Some people just now... I mean, every year I, I read something on social media where people are like, oh my God, I just got what this song's about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I know. It, it's, I love that. Yeah. That's it's like funny. Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World. He's like, we're not really rockin' in the free world. If you listen to the lyrics, yeah. I'm being pretty critical. I love that. So Vance Powell, there's a little overlap because this is uh, this podcast I'm doing in partnership with Osiris Media. And Osiris was co-founded by Tom Marshall, who's one of the main lyricists for Fish. Mm -hmm. And he was on a podcast recently talking about producing Sigma Oasis, which is Fish's latest album. And he was raving about working with you in the earlier days. So I feel like a lot of the people over here at Osiris are going to love the synergy and overlap with that. I saw your credits and you list producer as one of the things that you've been getting into lately. How, what is the significance of being a producer to you? You know, it's funny. I, I, I made my first record, Time Has Come, and wasn't listed as a producer, even though I was super involved. And when I do something, I'm just very, very involved. And the second record, I went back to the same producers and I said, listen, after the record was almost all the way done and we were talking about credits, I said, I need, I mean, I didn't say I need, because at that time I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> said, hey, listen, um, would it be all right if I got producer credit on this? And they were like, well, in order to get producer credit, you have to, you know, contribute ideas and be there for all the sessions. And, and I went, I looked at them and they're like, and you were. So yeah, sure. <laughs> right. Amen. But, Advocate for yourself. Yeah, I did. And I think the reason that was so important to me was because I don't know, I just felt like it was right. You know, I felt like here's these guys, these two guys who are incredibly talented, but were taking all the credit when I was in there, man. Like I was in the trenches doing the work, caring making decisions about overdubs, making decisions about drum sounds, making decisions about arrangements, all of it. Yeah. 
it was sort of an empowerment thing for me personally. Like it let me move forward with this kind of sense of a power. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. (laughs) In a good way. Your creative property, like that's your intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way that Nashville defines producer has evolved a lot. I think people who are putting their blood, sweat and tears into their albums deserve to get that producer credit. So everyone out there listening, advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. Listen up. Martina has spoken about it. Other things I wanted to talk to you about that are just really fun for me to watch on your social media. I, I fangirl over your cooking so much. I want to get in the kitchen with you. You're a great so cook, badly. right? You love to cook, right? I love to cook, but I'm not Martina McBride level. I don't have around the table a Martina's kitchen mix yet. You will if you want it. Maybe you can teach me your ways. I do remember on tour... One of your PAs, their walkie-talkie went off and I was like, Martina would like some more Adamame hummus from her cookbook, please. And I was <laughs> like, I want some Adamame hummus. <laughs> Where do I get that? That's so I found your recipe. My drummer, Sarah Tomek, who absolutely loves you, said that you guys were exchanging information, recipe stuff on yeah. Instagram, which is amazing. I don't know how you even have the time to do such stuff, but... No, I love that um, you're just such an open book and you you make spaces nice for people. You entertain, you your podcast. I love your podcast, Vocal Point, where you had your whole family on to be part of it. I thought that was tremendous. Gosh, that was at the beginning of this lockdown, wasn't it? Yeah. So are you enjoying the podcast, Vocal Point? I am. We actually have taken a little hiatus during this time, um, but we're getting ready to crank back up in 2021. And I'm excited. You know, I don't know how you feel about doing a podcast, but for me at first, it was like, I don't know if I want to do a podcast. I'm, I'm always a little, I'm a little reserved. You can't tell it now, but um, I'm like still that little Kansas girl that goes, I don't know if I'm going to have anything to talk about. Like, how am I going to talk to Roseanne Cash? She's so smart, right? Oh, that kind of she's thing. on my list. She's on my That's list. Amazing. You have to do it because she's, incredibly generous of spirit. It was one of my favorite interviews that I did. And so anyway, yeah, I, I just decided to go for it and um, ended up really enjoying and, and had conversations with people that I would never have been able to sit down with. And it made me more outgoing. It really did. Well, I love your singing voice, but I love your speaking voice. Also your familiarity with Loretta Lynn and Garth Brooks was the first episode. Just so awesome you're so sharp. It shows your knowledge and the fact that you're hot AF and you've had this career for two decades. It very much comes through when you listen to this podcast that your knowledge of music has been curated over all these years of you really listening to other people and being a good podcast host, I think is about also being a great listener. And that comes through when I listen. I think everyone should check it out. It's on Luminary. Mm-hmm. Actually, we're getting ready to, um, in 2021, we're shifting it to all, all platforms, you know, uh, wherever you can get podcasts and it won't be behind a subscription anymore. So yeah, I'm excited about that too, because what Vocal Point was, was material that was only created just for them. It was like exclusive, but I love now I'm, I'm loving the fact that it's going to be sort of everywhere and easy to discover for people. And people will learn so much from 
those podcasts being widely available because you're doing so much for these newer artists that you're introducing, but you also can conduct these conversations with living legends. And it's been really fun for me to listen to it and study it. And I'd love to have you on. I am down, you know, I'm there. I would love to do that. There's no way I would have ever been able to tell that you consider yourself to be introverted because you pull some crazy juicy nuggets out of your subjects. And it's, it's really fun and very educational. So check that out, everybody. It's called Vocal Point and it will be available. When do you think you'll gear up that next season? I would say February, March. That's awesome. You had 26 episodes in your first season. It was You're an overachiever. It was crazy. And toward the end, when it was the COVID situation, I was kind of scrambling to figure out how to fill that. But we we, did, we were pretty creative with how to make that happen. And I mean, get, getting to talk to Loretta and Brenda Lee and I don't know, it, it's just really special. It's really special to get to spend time and Vince and Amy. And I was really lucky that, that first year that people said yes. You know how it is when you have a podcast and you're like, God, I hope somebody wants to come and talk to me. It's, it's a huge thing for, you know, I always think of it as like, they got to come down here to the Blackbird. They have to I always say it's only going to be like an hour, but you know, usually it ended up being longer than that because we enjoyed ourselves. Right. Yeah. I love the format and I can't imagine that anyone would ever not want to do the podcast with you. I cannot wait for season two, for it to be everywhere. I always laughed about one of the Twitter accounts out there that's called Drunken Martina. Yeah. This is how iconic you are, that there are fake accounts pretending to be you. The descriptor for this account is, this is not Martina, by the way, so if you all go on Twitter and find it, these aren't her words, but they describe Drunken Martina as teensy-weensy belligerent shug knight of inspirational women anthems. <laughs> and I feel like you were such a good sport and have been over the years, like leaning into this parody account of someone who's mostly commenting on the state of country music. Does it ever feel just like everyone stop and like get off my case or? No, honestly, I think it's hilarious. And I've actually had contact with that person. I don't know who they are. <laughs> oh um, we had some email contacts, so I still don't know who they are. But uh, I, I think it's hilarious. I think it's so well done. And What's really, I, I'm going to share this with you. What's really interesting to me, and I don't know if it's confusing, puzzling, interesting, I don't know what the word is, but like whoever this person is who, des- who describes me in these kind of combative situation <laughs> with alcohol involved, not that I'm just like not combative, but like, you know, just feisty. I'm thinking, are they, do they really know me? Because they really kind of nail it. <laughs> Right. Or are they, are they making fun of me because they think I'm so like not that person or they really do. They really get that. I really kind of am that person. Like I'm so confused by it. (laughs) I love the mystique and everyone out there can speculate as to how truthful this projection of you is. I think that it's awesome. I'd like to think that you're, you're a little bit of it all, you know, you're a pro, but you also know how to party. Yeah, life's too it's, short. Right? Absolutely. I look forward to drinking tequila with you when we're all allowed to hug each other again. Yes, yes. 
I've been really blown away by how vociferous you've been about women in country getting the representation that they deserve, making it more of a meritocracy for women. And we touched on it earlier in your work with Leslie Fram and Brandi Carlisle and the equal play movement. But do you think that the condition of things has improved? In some ways, I think the awareness of the condition has improved. However, I just did a voiceover for a radio entity that, you know, I'm introducing songs and I, and I did like a three or four hour like block of guest DJing. And the whole first, I don't know how many, the first maybe 15 acts were men. And people I'd never heard of. (laughs) And so I was like, well, when I see something like that, I wonder how fast is it changing or is it really changing? But I mean, you would be a better person to ask because I'm sort of on the other side of it. Like you're in the thick of it. And by the way, I want to say, well, we had this moment that I admire what you're doing so much. You don't even know. Thank you. First of all, I love your, I love your singing. You're a badass singer and such a soulful singer. And when I see on, you know, on, on um, social media, you making these albums, this live album that you made and all this music that you're creating and making without the help, really, of a machine, which I had, right? So, like, it's so much harder what you're doing and so much gutsier and admirable in a way. I watch it and I'm like, how is she doing all that? How is she doing it? Like, because I was brought up through through this industry when it was, there was this very safe, it it wasn't easy necessarily. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I had a, I had a, I had a machine around me and I had people that were, you know, executives that could help me make records and give me money for, to make records and, or I guess loan me money to make records. I did pay it back. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you know, it's like, I see what you're doing and I'm like, shit, that's really hard. And so I just want to tell you that whatever you need from me, which you don't obviously need anything. You're doing great. But I'm just saying like, I just really admire you. And I want you to know that. Thank you, Martina. I feel it. And I, I've, I've really always felt it. I feel like you've always been a cheerleader. And I know you have a hundred thousand other things to do, but you, and I'm not the only one who feels this way. I've talked to my peers who are in Nashville making music who have felt your outreach and your genuine support. And it means a lot to us. And, you know, I have to say, I have, I kind of had to abandon country. I put it in quotations, music, Mm -hmm. but I, I just played at the Opry last week and Leslie Fram is like my, my auntie here in Nashville. And like, there's so many people part of this community who feel familial to me, but I couldn't put up with the inequity anymore. And I also was like, I'm appreciated over in these areas, like in mm-hmm. this arena, like more of the Americana rock soul tribe. I I feel like my music is resonating more, but I love country music and I love the storytelling aspect of it, what I think you do so well. And I love the community and the way that people are friends, but I, I did not love the radio Mm-hmm. side of it. I didn't like radio tour. And, you know, I know that you've done that many times. You've gone to stations all over the country and there becomes this feeling of just like dread every Monday morning. Did I get an ad today? And if I didn't, I'm dead. I'm toast. My label's dropping me, whatever. So I'm flourishing much more in this lane of self-sufficiency where I have to, yes, it's harder, 
in some ways there isn't anyone to really expedite certain things, but I do have a really great team and they're well-oiled and I feel, I feel your support. Thank you. It has to be liberating too. It is. But like what we, what I did, I wouldn't trade it for anything, but I don't know, you know, as I'm older and look back, it was interesting. (laughs) But you're like a queen of country music and you came up with people who are your best friends, like Faith Hill and you you gave Little Big Town an opening slot and now Lady Fairchild, we love her and Kimberly, like these are icons of country music. So it's just disappointing to see a generation that came up with women reigning supreme, not getting that representation that they deserve. And I feel like you have been someone constantly vocal about it, posting statistics about Spotify, not representing women accurately. Let's not even get started on radio and program directors playlisting. The ripple effect from that is what kills me. Like why I really am angry is part of it is obviously because female artists deserve to be played, but also there's the ripple effect when you think about the fact how that affects the little girl in Kansas who is listening to the radio and all she hears are, you know, 15 songs in a row by men objectifying women. It's like, how does she see herself? She doesn't see herself as being the next Tammy Wynette or Faith Hill or whatever. She she doesn't even know that there's a place for her on country radio because she never hears any women on country radio with the point of view. Not that the women on country radio don't have a point of view. Please don't get I totally, I don't think anyone would misconstrue like, that. I'm saying that the women's point, a woman's point of view, which is what I sang about, what everybody that came before me sang about is just missing, right? So- to me, country music has been so fantastic because of the, all the viewpoints and all the, you know, the female point of view, the male point of view, and it all worked together until a point. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened. And people ask me what happened. I'm like, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But, you know, a lot of it is the sound of music changed. Like we, we used to be able to coexist, Faith and Winona and Jody Messina and me. And we all used to be able to coexist with Erasmus Flats and Alan Jackson. And like the Sonicscape was similar, right? So you could play a Concrete Angel on the radio and not be like, what is that? After 15 songs that are like, that are current now, right? So it wasn't shock. It wasn't like jarring. It was like everybody, everything kind of mesh together and somewhere along the line and I I have to say you know I think it's it's it comes down to songwriters producers like all of them (laughs) there's a little bit of responsibility with everybody I know it's lucrative but shoot you know it's like everybody has a little bit of a hand in the game when it comes to why are why are we here right yeah it's getting a little stale and it, it, it sent me running, to be honest. And, and I'm so glad. Like, you know, and there's that whole thing. Like, you know, you now have found this place where you are, you feel free and you're making, you're creating in a very free way. That's not about, oh my gosh, this is going to be a hit on country radio. Right. So that's beautiful. And mm-hmm. I think it's a balance, I guess. Right. You can't drink from an empty well. And I think that after a while and, and so many heartbreaks and demeaning radio tours, like I don't think there's any one villain in this story, but I mean, I was so dog tired after coming home off the road and visiting station after station and feeling just completely evaluated. And I haven't felt that way 
in a long time. I'm still scared constantly and taking chances, but it is more of a gratifying fear or, or maybe excitement or, mm-hmm. or knowing that what I'm doing is worth doing. But I would really like to see that change. And I would like to see the definition of country music evolve. I think your dad would like to see that, you know, like, did you get to bring your dad to the Opry? I did. You did. And he performed with you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He sang, we sang, um, Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter did a version of, uh, it wasn't God who made honky tonk angels and honky tonk angel. And, um, we did that because we'd been doing that since forever and we did that on the on the Opry and I was so nervous for him like I can remember just feeling like oh, I'm so nervous for him but then he started singing and I was like oh god yeah of course like there's no reason to be nervous he's been doing this all his life yeah where'd you learn this from <laughs> yeah exactly and and you know recently he came to Nashville my mom passed away in January I'm so sorry thank you they hadn't been to Nashville for probably 10 years and um he, I went up on the bus and I picked him up and he brought him back down here and he said, I want to make a record. And so we put him in the studio and my younger brother played guitar and I hired some great musicians and he just cut some classics, classic country songs. And it's so great. And so like to be able to, I don't know, to help him facilitate that dream too. Gosh, that's so cool. Circle moment for sure. Full circle, no pun intended. Welcome to the circle. That's so awesome, Martina. I love that. I'm so thankful to your dad for having ignited that fire for country music in your heart. And the fact that you guys get to play on that stage together and what that means is so tremendous. And if country were to widen its embrace to people like Margot Price and Yola, and I'm talking country radio, because I think that as far as like, the standard goes, they have already met it, then this would be a much better place. But I'm so happy that you keep insisting on equal representation because it's so hard out there. And I want this to be an environment that inspires women that were my age when it was the country diva reigning supreme because that's why I moved here Mm-hmm. 2008 and I would like to see a new crop of talent come in because they believe that they too have a chance to cut through and make an impression God I love you I could talk to you forever but we're going to wrap it up with a question that I like to end these conversations with and it's about not what the plight of being a woman in the industry is, but what is the advantage, in your opinion, to being a woman in the music industry or in general? Well, it's a lot in general. In the music industry, I feel like I feel like we have an, a unique point of view and perspective and also a, a, a way of communicating that when we can get that across, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And I feel like as women, we are also we're generally generally inclusive compassionate your song girls like me really sends that message home and i love it and i think the the biggest i think the biggest challenge that women in this industry have that i learned along the way is who you surround yourself with so and i i really honestly have a lot of men my band my crew my management you know we we have a lot of men in our lives and our careers but surrounding yourself with people who respect you, who support you, who 
love to hear your questions and your ideas and just like are evolved. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, you know, because when you're, if you're in a, in this industry with a bunch of people that are not evolved, it's, oof. and sometimes it takes a minute to find those people, to weed the people out that are not going to work for you, not, not work for you as in working for me, but like working to your advantage, I guess. Yeah. Not driving with you, having the women's intuition to assemble a team around you that is worthy and is going to support your evolution while evolving themselves. And I think part of it is too, you know, the important part of that is you support them as well. It's like, it's like, it's like a balance. It's communication. It's empathy, it's love, it's teamwork, it's all of those things. You have to be a team player as well. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Yes. Like, you have to be supportive of the people around you. I mean, I guess you don't have to be, but I've found for me so, so many years into this business that when I treat people the way I want to be treated, that's when it, it really gels and works and everybody's happy. And when ha- people are happy, they're productive and, you know, when everybody feels respected. Really, at the end of the day, isn't that what it's about? Like, isn't that what we're all after? Reciprocity. Yeah. And symbiotic relationships, setting the tone, decorating your space. And then people reflect that, how you decorated it. Yeah. Well, you have such a good camp. I know that firsthand. And you're, you're just wonderful. You're a wonderful human being, a tremendous talent. And you're keeping it going. You're just (laughs) kicking ass as usual. And I don't anticipate that that's going to stop ever. So thank you so much for being on Salute the Songbird, Martina. I salute you and really, really admire you, love you. And I'm I'm very appreciative to you. So thank you so much for lending your time and for all your support for me and my fellow women out there and men. Well, I'm always here for you, Maggie. You're the best, Martina. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you to the legendary Martina McBride for taking the time to chat with us today and share her stories in warm spirit. There are hours of music from Martina available for you to enjoy, along with her two cookbooks, Around the Table, and Martina's Kitchen Mix. And you'll be able to hear more conversations with Martina and her impressive guests on her upcoming second season of her podcast, Vocal Point, which will be available everywhere upon its release. You've been listening to Salute the Songbird on Osiris Media. The executive producers are Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton from Osiris Media and Austin Marshall. And the show is edited and mixed by Brad Stratton. Original music by Maggie Rose. Please subscribe to Salute the Songbird on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. And if you like the show, please recommend it to a friend or leave us a review so that others can join the conversation. Thanks for listening, and to close out the show, here's Girls Like Me by Martina McBride. I remember that first time I fell in love. I've never been the one to be afraid to jump, and sometimes it hurts, but the world still turns. I remember that first sad broken heart, and I told myself I wouldn't fall apart, so I let it burn. That's how you live and learn It ain't always easy But it's gonna be alright It is
old dreams are gone and you got new priorities you thought you knew what you wanted but you had it all wrong yeah it takes a few steps just to get it all together it might hurt now but it won't last forever make those mistakes that'll make you Better. It used to be me hiding. 